Well, welcome listeners to the fourth segment of my apologetics series that I have begun. Before we get into this one, let me preface this. The two that I'm going to cover today, pretty much in a lot of these um, that I cover, but primarily these two. Let me, let me give you this proverbial warning, or not proverbial, uh, this preemptive warning that depending to the degree of how indoctrinated you have, um, you have been in your understanding maybe of what these two passages are going to be and what I'm going to teach on these two. Uh, will determine probably how willing and how receptive you are to receive some of the things that I'm going to say. So I'm going to ask you to stay with me along these things because there's going to be some things that I'm going to point out that you might not have ever thought about. And I want us to understand that God's word is God's word. It's not open for us um, to um, change, to twist. It's open for us to submit to what it says. And the plain teaching that's there. And what man has oftentimes done over the years is a distortment of his truth based off of an incomplete formula. Now, I talked about this actually recently at a, at a men's thing um, several mornings ago. The concept of the al- algebraic equation of A plus B equals C. Now, in the formula of scripture, it's quite a bit more complex to, to be able to dissect some things. But for some things, it's, it is a very simple Um, formula, A plus B equals C. But here's what's happened. In many ways, we have taken a verse or maybe an assortment of verses and we've we've garnered a conclusion from those verses without inputting other verses into the equation. And this is where the apologetic study comes in. I want to go through the text to show you that maybe the ways that we have looked at some of these passages are not correct because we have excluded and ignored other passages in dissecting to find out what the real answer actually is. We've ignored part of the formula to find the right answer. And so as we go through these two verses that I've got today, it's going to be a little bit weighty. It's going to be very meaty. Um, There's going to be some things that I'm probably going to unveil or unravel. And and may the Lord give you understanding and give me understanding as I go go through these things to be able to try to teach them to you guys. Um, So, the first verse we're going to talk about is 1 John 1.9. Now, if you are familiar with this verse, um, as many people are, This is a verse that is oftentimes used in conjunction with the moment that a person gets saved. Now, let's give some backstory to 1 John. This is John the Apostle who's writing this, and he's writing it from the island of Patmos, as most scholars agree on that one. Roughly anywhere from about, from my study, it's kind of convoluted as to when it was, but what I do know is that this was probably anywhere from 50 to maybe 75 years after his conversion. John, by this time, is an old man. And by this time, John is, is riding from the island of Patmos because the, the Romans couldn't kill him. They tried, they couldn't kill him, but because God said, uh, or Jesus talked about, and he says that there's some of you who are with me who will not taste death until they see the kingdom, until they see the Son of Man coming in all of his glory. That's the book of Revelation. John couldn't die yet. God did not allow him to die yet because he had yet to see the revelation of Jesus' glory when he returns. That he had to write down. Well, he's at the island of Patmos because they couldn't kill him. So they cast him to this island. And this is where he's writing 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and the book of Revelation and the gospel of John. To my understanding and all that. 
And so in this one, I want you to understand, it's a very important thing to, to mark. John is referencing all of these things that he's about to address, specifically in verse 9, roughly anywhere from 50 to probably 80 years after his conversion. Why is that important? Because John isn't referencing the moment of his conversion. Why is that important? Because the, very, the second word he uses in verse 9 is we. And he doesn't talk about it in a past tense. You see, we've, we've concluded that this verse is referencing that the moment that I pray this prayer and genuinely submit my life to Jesus Christ, all my past, present, future sins are wiped away and he cleanses me from all unrighteousness. But let's listen to what the verse says. I could see that being true if John said this. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. If he didn't include himself, then I could see that that would have some merit. Or if John would say, when we confessed our sins, he was faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But that's not what John says. John says, if we confess, present tense, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John, 50 to 80 years after his conversion, in the present tense, is now stating, there is something you have to do right now to be forgiven and cleansed from unrighteousness if you have a stain against you. If you have ventured into sin, you have to do something in order to be cleansed from all unrighteousness and to be forgiven. Now that throws a giant wrench into this popularized theory today that when I came into Christ, all my past, present, future sins were wiped away, forgiven, and forgotten, never to be brought back again. Going back, backing up into verse 6, I want to establish a little bit of context to what he's stating here. And I want you again to notice the present tense. John says, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, notice the two things that we have and the requirement to get them. It is not an, an unconditional thing that is just granted to us as believers. John includes himself in this. But if, conditional, if we walk in the light as he is in the light... The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin and backing up, we have fellowship with one another. I'm hoping that you're kind of smelling what I'm stepping in here, that you're catching what I'm throwing out. John, in the present tense, including himself in all of these passages, is stating that we have a responsibility to walk in the light in order to have fellowship with one another. And I believe that's a conclusive truth all throughout the text. And I think many people would agree with that, but that's the problem. Is many people agree with that, but they disagree with what John says in verse 9. We've changed the context in order to establish the truth that we want. And maybe it's intentional, maybe it's unintentional. Maybe it's just we've been indoctrinated and so we don't even see the incongruency of some of our beliefs. John is establishing in the present tense that we have a responsibility to walk in the light as he is in the light. And if we are walking in the light, if we choose to walk as he walked... Which is what he says in 1 John 2.6. Then his blood cleanses us from all sin. But if we walk in darkness, if we choose to say, you know what, I'm going to deliberately walk in this sin. And we're going to get into that in Hebrews chapter 10, 26 through 31. 
I'm going I'm to venture into this sin. Maybe it's deliberate, maybe it's unintentional. He says, then his blood's not cleansing you from all sin because you're not walking in the light. Anyone who says that he's walking in the light, but he's actually walking in darkness is a liar. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and don't practice the truth. You can't say that you're not walking as he walked, but you're still forgiven of all sin because 1 John 1 says otherwise. It's only when you choose to walk in the light as he is in the light that his blood cleanses us from all sins. John includes himself, present tense. Now, I wanted to establish some of these contextual things within the passage itself, and I'm about to get into some of these verses. But I want us to understand, John is referencing himself into the equation, and he's referencing it in the present tense. And so that has got to be a building block that we use to establish what John's truth is in this passage. And that is, if we confess our sin, then God is faithful to forgive us of that sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Which also means that you can have a stain against you. And that you are not necessarily just the righteousness of God. Because at one time you believed early on in your life. And all he sees upon you is the righteousness of Christ. Another passage that's used in conjunction with this. Is one that's oftentimes used in something called the Romans road. Another one in which we oftentimes get distorted. Because Romans 3.23 is part of it. As well as Romans 6.23. And actually what many people try to teach those passages. Saying the inverse is true. The wages of sin is death. But if you notice the context of the passage, he's referencing to believers, not to unbelievers. But we use it as an altar call. And that's going to be a topic for another time because I do have that listed on my scriptures of Romans 3.23 and 6.23. But I'll digress back to my point. In Romans 3.25, here's what he says. Whom God put forward as a propitiation, talking about Jesus Christ, it means a, a, a substitution. Alright, it's no longer going to be the blood of bulls and goats. It's now going to be the blood of Christ in which you plead to find the forgiveness of your sins. He becomes a substitutionary atonement on your behalf in which now, through my faith in Jesus Christ, I have access to, to be able to plead the blood of Jesus. Not have to go sacrifice an animal to have that atoned for and to be a replacement, if you will, Every single year as it was in the old law. Now there's an eternal blood of the covenant by which I can come into Jesus Christ. And I can find forgiveness. As 1 John 1.9 just qualified how I get that forgiveness in him. But here's what he says. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former Sins. Now, why wouldn't he have just said sins? Paul could have very easily just completely left out the word prognomei. He could have just left it out and just said that he passed over sins. All of your sins, past, present, future, he just passed over all of those things. But he didn't. And here's what that word means. Those which were before sins that had already been committed and were past. Now, why would Paul include that? Well, I think that it's it's evident as to what he's including it for. To show us that when we came into Christ, his blood atoned for all of our past sins prior to that moment. That there was not a sin that was unatonable. 
There was not a sin that God couldn't cleanse us from. There was not a sin that God looked at and said, no, I'm going to have that carry over. No, in the times of our ignorance and our transgressions and our rebellion, God overlooked those times. Because we have now come into the person of Jesus Christ and submitted our, Lord, our, our life to him as the Lord of our life, God says, the blood has covered your past sins. It doesn't say sins. It says your past sins. Now all these things, I think people could probably reason away. They could probably t- do a little song and dance and, and, and make it, you know, reasoned, reason it away and say, ah, but you know what, it's, it's this or that, or, or look, it's the divine forbearance, or look, the propitiation is the substitution that we might become the righteousness of God. And, and, and we could maybe reason away, we could ignore the context, we could ignore the tense that's being used by John in 1 John chapter 1. We could ignore the fact that Paul includes the word former when he could have just left it out and it would have just been all sins. But how are you going to ignore this one in Hebrews chapter 10, 26-31? Remember, this is an apologetic study, which means that I'm using truth to prove truth. I'm not just going to take a handful of verses and then try to establish things off of that. I'm taking verses that people oftentimes twist and misconstrue, and I'm bringing truth back into the equation to say, how can that be true if this is equally true? You see, I want the entire formula to be into the equation. I want all of the A's, all the letters of the alphabet to have a seat at the table before we conclude what truth really is. And the problem is today is we have a lot of empty chairs. We have a lot of empty chairs at that table because we've made truth relative to what we want it to be. In Hebrews chapter 10, 26-31, and by the way, it's, it's impossible to state that this is referencing unbelievers because look at the context of the preceding verses that he brings up. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. You could look at in 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promises faithful. Obviously, the context is written to believers. I've heard the John MacArthur's teach on this passage and try to pose that this is referencing unbelievers, but I would say that that is ignorance. You would have to ignore some very crucial things that I'm about to point out to show that this is not referencing unbelievers. This is what he says. For if we... I'll just stop right there. For one, the first word that's used there is for, which links it to previous thoughts of what he's stating. Two, the author of Hebrews says we. He doesn't say you. He doesn't say y'all. He doesn't say any exclusionary term outside of himself. He includes himself. It is impossible for this word we to not be including himself within it. He says, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving a knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Wait a second. What? Why doesn't this have a seat at the table? Let me just keep reading on it. But a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. He's bringing it back into the law. He says, back in the law, if somebody set aside a commandment, even though they were his people, even though they were Jews, even though they were God's people, if somebody set aside a commandment and said, you know what, I don't really want to do that one today, even though I know the truth, I'm going to set it aside. He said, they died. 
on the evidence of two or three witnesses. They died. Listen to what he says about the Christian who chooses to set aside a command that we have through Jesus Christ under this new covenant. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has listened to these three things? Who has trampled underfoot the Son of God. <clears throat> Making it a new covenant thing. Because the only one who can trample under the, under, um, underfoot the Son of God as somebody who is in the new covenant. Under the new terms of that covenant. I'm not necessarily saying that that's indicating that the person necessarily is a Christian based off of that. What I'm stating is there's nowhere in the Old Testament is Jesus referenced as the Son of God. He was not made the Son of God until the new covenant began. That's a whole other topic. That's why he says, today I've begotten you. But he goes on, he says, and has profaned the blood of the covenant, talking new covenant, not old. All right. The reason I'm pointing this out is I don't want you to get lost in the translation that because he brought up the law of Moses, that all of a sudden he's referencing still the law of Moses. No, that was under the old covenant. We are now under the new covenant. And that's going to feed into my next passage that I'm going to, go, that I'm going to talk about in Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Stick around for that one. That one might throw you for a loop. But listen to what he says. Has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. So now we have the author including himself. And he's directing this to people who have been sanctified by the blood of Christ. Who's that? The only people who could have been sanctified by the blood of Christ. In the past tense form that the author uses here are Christians. That's the only people. Not potentially sanctified, nor could be sanctified. But it says, by which he was sanctified. And has outraged the spirit of grace. Why have you outraged the spirit of grace? Because you have received the spirit of grace. And you're treating it as profane. This is what James 4 is all about. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is an enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The only people who can make themselves enemy of God, enemies of God, are Christians. Because when you were born into this world, you were born already as an enemy of God. That's what Ephesians 2 tells us. We were walking as enemies of God before we came to know Jesus Christ. And then we became a friend of God. But as James 4 clearly says, you can make yourself an enemy of God, even after being a believer. And he says, but he gives more grace. What does he mean by that? No, he doesn't say, I'm just going to hug you in the mud. No, he doesn't say that you're an, an adulterer um, against this covenant, which by the way, the only way that you can be an adulterer against the covenant of God is to be in covenant with God. Nobody's ever committed adultery outside of their marriage to someone. You can't commit adultery if you're not actually married to somebody. You could fornicate with somebody. You could um, cause somebody else to be an adulterer. But you cannot be an adulterer if you're not in covenant with someone else. And this is why James 4 is very clearly evidencing a believer. What does he say? He gives more grace. No, he's not saying, I'm just going to hug you in the mug and I'm just going to look at your adultery and it's going to be like, oh, but you know what? It's okay, my child, because I still love you. No, he says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us. 
The concept of giving more grace is when you understand grace to be the divine influence of enabling power. It's saying, I'm going to give you what you need to repent and to turn from this. That's why he goes on to say, not how much I love you and how much all this. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Turn from your wicked ways. Yes, you are making yourself an enemy of, of me. And I'm upset with you. I'm yearning jealously over the spirit that dwells inside of you. That Holy Spirit that is in you. I yearn jealously over that. And you are outraging the spirit of grace. So you need to repent. Listen to what he goes on to say in Hebrews chapter 10. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, this is a judgment passage. This is not a loss of salvation passage. This is simply just a judgment passage in which the writer of Hebrews is drawing the attention of the listener to other Christians. He's drawing their attention to say, God still takes sin seriously, even to the believer. And if you think that you can walk in intentional sin and get away with it, you better think twice. And the problem is, is I think a lot of people would agree with that statement. But here's what they don't see. The incongruency of the statement that whenever I came into Christ and I, I submitted to Him as Lord, all my past, present, future sins were forgiven. Well, let me ask you something. If they were forgiven then, then how am I going to give an account for them later? If they were forgiven and forgotten, how am I going to give an account for them later on? As Hebrews 10, 26-31 very clearly states. I could take you to 2 Corinthians 5.10, which uh, Paul includes himself on, and he says, We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, each of us to give an account for what we have done in the body, whether good or evil. You know what evil would be? Sin. And he says, and I'm going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for what I've done in this body, whether good or evil. Paul includes himself. Going on into Romans 14, 12, Paul says the same thing. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God, each of us to give an account for himself. Guys, if it's true that all unrighteousness has been cleansed from me at the moment of my salvation, and when God looks at me, he only sees the blood of Jesus. When God looks at me, he sees his own righteousness because it's been imputed to me in the, right, in the imputed righteousness theory. If that is true, then you tell me how these other passages are true. How can I give an account of every careless word? How is it that if I teach the word, I'm going to give a more strict judgment? How are all of these things true? If it's been forgiven and forgotten when I came into Jesus Christ. You see, the problem is, is it can't be. You can't have both. You see, the reality is, when it says in 1 John 1, 9, that I've been cleansed from all unrighteousness, that's referencing any future sin you commit after knowing Jesus Christ as Lord. Your past sins were wiped away and forgiven, and you were cleansed from all unrighteousness. But moving forward, moving forward, you still have a job to do. You still have to walk in the light. You still have to do that. You still have to confess those sins in order to be forgiven. It is not a loss of salvation. Please do not misunderstand what I'm saying. It is simply a judgment. You will give an account. 
But if your name is found written in the book of life, then you get in. And I want to show you something in just a second. But I also want you to understand, John in the present tense says that he will be cleansed from all unrighteousness. That means that it's impossible for him to simply be just the righteousness of Christ. And I know this because even Paul says in Galatians 5.5 5, that he waits eagerly for the hope of righteousness. Um, well, let me ask you this. If Paul is waiting for eagerly the hope of righteousness, how is he already righteous? If he's waiting for it, that means he doesn't have it. Even in 2 Timothy 4, 7-8, Paul says it. Where he says that, I've kept the faith, I've finished the race, I've fought the good fight. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of, you guessed it, righteousness. You see, we've got to distinguish between the fact of actually having the promise by faith. And then that promise come to fruition. Similar to what Paul teaches in Romans 8, 14 and 15 when he says, I've been given the spirit of adoption. But in verse 23 of the same chapter, Paul says, I wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of my body. You see, I have the promise, but I have to endure to the end to receive the promise. Or I have to do the requirement that God has prescribed in his word for me to receive what has been promised. And for in this context, in order to be cleansed from unrighteousness due to sin, I have to confess that sin in order for that to be true. Now, some of you, this might be a new, a new thought process for you. So let me read something for you real quick in, in Revelation chapter 20. And I know these, these two are going to be lengthy ones. If you want to break it up into certain segments or whatever and just read this part this, uh, or listen to this first verse that I'm going to do, then go for it. I'm going to stop this one in about five minutes and go into the next one. And that one's going to be weighty too. But these are the two that I felt like the Lord pressed on my heart to be able to share partially because this first verse is one I'm dealing with right now. It's one that I've had to kind of tackle right now. In many ways. Because I see that there's this misteaching or this indoctrination that has happened to people who are out there in the church today and they don't realize that it's incongruent with the fullness of the text. And this is why I love apologetics so much. In Revelation chapter 20, I want you to listen very carefully to what he says here. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who is seated on it, from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what was written in the book. Now, here's the thing. Who are these dead? Who are the dead that are standing before the throne to where books are open and they were judged according to what was written, not in the book, but in the books? Let me read the next verse because that gives us insight into who the first group of the dead were. He says, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books. And listen to what it says, according to what they had done. Let me, let me read that one again. Just, I want you to emphasize this just a little bit more emphatically on this one. I want you to understand. It wasn't according to their position necessarily. It wasn't according to their faith. It wasn't according to anything else other than according to what they had done. Which brings merit to 2 Corinthians 5.10. That we will be judged according to what we have done. Whether good or evil. And so this first group, this first dead group is standing before the throne. Okay? And they were judged according to what was written in the book. 
So in these books that are opened up, they are judged according to what they had done. Okay, And then there's this secondary group of dead people. Let's see who they are. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. That word for death there that's capitalized in many translations is a different word than what's used in the other words for death. It's a word that signifies thanatos. It's a word that signifies the spiritually dead. And where was their domain? In Hades. Now Hades is the holding place of torment until the lake of fire, until hell is opened up. And there's a lot to unpack in this concept. But here's what I want you to see. is There's a second group of dead people that belonged in Hades. Well then, if all those who don't have an abiding relationship with Jesus Christ go to Hades. Then who do you think the first group was? You probably guessed it. Christians. And what does it say about them? That they are judged according to what was written in the books. Now here's another key thing. Because if you don't believe me and you think, well maybe that was just some other group of unbelievers that was there. What was the other book that was opened up? It was the book of life. Now here's what's interesting. There's no other group of dead people that are standing before the thrones here. No other group of dead people that arise onto the scene. It is only these two groups. You have the group that was standing before the throne. And you have the group that came from Hades. Who were spiritually dead. Thanatos. They came from death in Hades. In order for any names to have been read from those two groups, from the book of life, as it goes on to say, then some of them had to have been Christians. In order for any of those two groups of people, it's all that's listed in this passage, for their names to be in the book of life, they had to have been Christians. So here's my statement. Clearly evidenced in Revelation chapter 20, 11 through 15. Christians will give an account according to what they have done. Not according to if they had just placed their faith in Jesus Christ, but according to their deeds. And if I'm going to be judged according to my deeds, then that means that not all past, present, future sins were wiped away, cleansed, forgiven, and forgotten at the moment of my salvation. If Paul is still waiting for that righteousness, then I guarantee you, you and I still are. We have not yet attained it. We have been given access to that righteousness. But we have a job to do. And do not think that you can walk in intentional or unintentional sin even. And that you will not give an account. So... If I had a lot more time to unpack that one, I contemplated just doing one segment over that one verse and taking a little bit longer, but I chose to go ahead and do a second one. Um, That one I know is weighty, and I would encourage you to do more study on it. But as I've talked to you before about, even in this segment, you need to make sure that you're allowing all verses to have a seat at the table before concluding what the truth really is. And there is other passages that are there. It's not just the Hebrews 10, 26 through 31. It's not just 2 Corinthians 5, 10. Not just Romans 14, 12. Not just Revelation 20, 11 through 15. There are way other passages, way many other passages that go into that one. Now here's another one that's oftentimes misconstrued. And for anyone who's more of like a Hebrew roots um, follower right now, this is probably going to make you a little upset. But I would encourage you, listen to what the text says. And if you see that I'm wrong, then I would love to hear in humility How? Because the way that I see it right now, I don't see how any of this is wrong. 
And that goes for the first John 1 John 1.9 as well. Matthew 5.17-20 Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so with this one, it would seem pretty clearly that Jesus has not come to abolish the law, that the law is in still full effect. Why did I say full effect? Because even the law in of itself says you will not add to or take away even the smallest degree of the law. Now therein lies an issue. Because for most people today, at least in the circles that that I'm influenced by and in and through, most people pick and choose what they want to honor. Most people look at the Ten Commandments and say, yeah, we need to still uphold the Ten Commandments. Oh, but the Sabbath one, we don't really need to do. Because Jesus is our Sabbath. He's given us our rest. Or maybe I'll just view Sunday as the Sabbath. You know what? Scripture in in the law, the law of Moses was very clear that you didn't change the Sabbath. It was Friday night until Saturday evening. You didn't change it. And in fact, if you tried to change it and you actually said, no, I'm going to make the Sabbath my Sunday uh, because that's just the Lord's day now. And so I'm going to make it Sunday. That's when my, my church gathers. And so Friday night to Saturday night, I'll still do my own thing. Well, you know there's a story about a guy who's picking up sticks on a Sabbath to make a fire? And Moses and Aaron, they didn't know what to do with them. So they went to God and they said, God, what do we do? And God said, kill him. He's profaning my Sabbath. You see, if you wanted to still work on Saturday... Because you wanted your Sabbath to be Sunday, you'd be in violation of the law. And that's a big problem. If you think it still exists for you. And I know a lot of people might be now looking at it and saying, wait wait a second, Matthew 5 says specifically that it does still exist. I believe in full that it does still exist. But not for those who are in Christ. Let me give you some backstory as to what Matthew 5 is all about. I think oftentimes we look at the Sermon on the Mount as the greatest sermon that's ever been preached. And while, yes, it is a wonderful sermon, I think many people have misconstrued what the Sermon on the Mount really is. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus talking to these Jews who have come to follow him, who have, not follow him, who have come to listen to him. The beginning of his ministry, he has this, this horde of people who are wanting to listen to him because they see something about him, but they're not quite sure of what's actually taking place yet with him. So they're listening to what he has to say. And he speaks as one who has an authority. And here's what Jesus is teaching them in this Sermon on the Mount. If you want to get to heaven through any other means, then you are going to have to be perfect. Even as your heavenly father, Jews, is who he's speaking to. Even as your heavenly father is perfect, you must be perfect. Because here's the deal. Once I die on that cross, I'm going to begin a new covenant. This is what Hebrews 9 teaches, that a covenant is not not um, put into place until the death occurs that redeems them from it. So until Jesus died, they were all still under that first covenant, inclusive of the law. And I believe that Matthew 5 primarily 
as it ends with, therefore you must be perfect even as your heavenly father perfect, that Jesus has culminated all that to say, it's not just about the deed, it's about the heart behind the deed. And if you are not perfect in your heart, then you won't get in. Because here's the reality. Once this new covenant is established, as Hebrews 10, 1-14 talks about, I will not look at the blood of bulls and goats any longer. God says, I will only look at the blood of my son. That is the only blood that I will look at in any regard for people to come to me and have an abiding relationship with me. And as we talked about previously, that if you want to be cleansed from all unrighteousness, it will be through the blood of Christ, which means you have a job to do within that. So that's the only blood that I'm going to look at. That's the only blood that I'm going to allow to be pleaded before my throne. It won't be the blood of bulls and goats, which was the temporary band-aid sacrificial atonement under the law. This is what Hebrews 7, 8, 9, and 10 are all about. I would encourage you to go read them. We're going to read one verse from chapter 8. But I would encourage you to go read 7, 8, 9, and 10. So I, I see Matthew 5. Jesus saying, the law is still in full effect. I haven't come to just abolish it. So that every single person, every Jew and Gentile out there no longer has to even look at the law whatsoever. But I believe Matthew 5 is Jesus telling the people, if you want to try to get into heaven through means of the law, then you are going to have to be perfect. Even as your heavenly father is perfect. And here's the problem. Nobody can do that. Outside of Christ, nobody can do it. So you're stuck at a crossroads here. Jesus says, I'm offering you eternal life and salvation in me, but here you are choosing to still want to go through the law to try to find your way to God. And he says, but through the law, nobody will be justified before him. This is what Galatians is all about. Through the law, you cannot be justified, which is a state of being put in a right standing with God. It's impossible. You cannot through your efforts through the law be in right standing with me. It's impossible. So where does that leave us? Where does that leave us with this law of Moses and how it's supposed to relate to us as believers today? Well, I'm going to turn to Ephesians chapter 2 and I'm going to read 14 through 15 in which Paul, which is the theme primarily of all of Ephesians, honestly, is the concept of the Jews and the Gentiles having um, mutual inclusion into this new covenant. Not exclusive of the Jews being better than the Gentiles. But that they are mutually inclusive of one another. And it's always been God's design. It's another one of the verses I want to go over and unpack is Ephesians 1.4. A lot of people think that Paul is referencing Christians. Paul's not referencing Christians. What Paul is referencing are the Jews and the Gentiles who from the foundation of the world... God had already set in plan that through Christ, Jews and Gentiles would find mutual inclusion through him unto God. Evidenced by the ark that you have a man of righteousness in Noah. And Noah's name means rest, born from Lamech, 777 years. That's not by coincidence. That means perfect completion. So Noah, born from the man of perfect completion... Builds this ark. The people didn't do it. He builds this ark. The animals didn't do it. He builds this ark. 
And these people found entrance under the salvation of destruction that was coming from all of mankind. These people found salvation through this wooden instrument that this man of righteousness, because of his righteousness, we were able to even come into it. But we have it illustrated that he brought animals onto this ark. And it wasn't just the clean ones. Because then we could just symbolize that that was the Jews. And it wasn't just the unclean. It was the Gentiles. It was both. So evidenced, even in the very beginning, God says, from the foundation of the world, I chose that the Jews and the Gentiles would both have inclusion. Which is why Ephesians 3 talks about the mystery of the gospel is this, that the Gentiles are fellow partakers and heirs of the gospel. That's the mystery. It wasn't that you and I were chosen before the foundation of the world as individuals. It was that we were part of a plan that God had predestined through Christ to bring about in the end. And if we don't get that right, then we come away with some erroneous beliefs. Again, having a lot of empty chairs at the table. But in Ephesians 2, he goes on and continues on with this concept about Jews and Gentiles. And he says that the law brought about this hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles. You can go through it and you can talk about, you know, no foreigner, don't learn their ways, don't, don't associate with them, don't do this. There's all kinds of things that are there. Don't marry them, don't, don't do anything with anyone who's not a Jew. And it brought about this hostility and this arrogance and haughtiness of the Jews to feel like they were entitled. And to a degree, I can understand why they did. They were God's chosen people. They were God's people. Nobody else had that privilege. And if you wanted to be part of that privilege, then you had to convert to Judaism. Much like it is with Christianity. We are God's people. But it shouldn't produce in us a haughtiness. It should produce in us humility. But here's what he says. For he himself is our peace, a reference to the Jews and Gentiles, who has made us... Jews and Gentiles, notice the same word that's used here is the same one used in Ephesians 1.4, who chose us in him, the Jews and the Gentiles, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. What is this dividing wall of hostility? By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might make in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Reconciling us to God through the cross. The concept that Paul is bringing here is one, that the, the Jews and the Gentiles, that there is no distinction between the two. Anyone can now come into this privilege, <coughs> excuse me, of finding salvation through Jesus Christ. And once we come into that, he says, then there's no distinction between you. The Jews are not better than the Gentiles and the Gentiles are not better than the Jews. You are on equal footing. You are both equal partakers of grace. You both have the same access unto the Father through the person of Jesus Christ. But listen to what he says. One of the other things that happens is that when you come into Christ, there's something that you find abolished. And it's the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. 
Now, what is that? Because I've heard people say that that's referencing the Talmud. That's not referencing the law of Moses. That's just referencing the Talmud. Well, let me break down these words for you. The word that is used here for abolishing is katergeo. It means to be rendered idle of no effect, useless, to be cease, to do away, and to make void. Okay, so whatever we're talking about, that's what he says abolished means. It has been rendered useless. It is no longer going to be able to do of any effect for you what it once maybe could. The law of commandments expressed in ordinances, it's a Greek word, dogma. And listen to what he says. Ceremonial and civil rules and requirements of the law of Moses, of severity and of threatened judgment. See, that word for law that's there is the word nomos, and it means anything really of law. But it specifically attaches itself to the law of Moses. It's not Talmud, because Talmud is not the law of Moses in any regard. It's the teachings of man of how to better keep the law of Moses. But in no way is it any authoritatively, it doesn't have any authority as the law of Moses does. So this word that's used there, Jesus very clearly says that the law of Moses has been rendered useless to those who come into Christ. Now this might be different um, than what you're used to hearing. Many people um, like to talk about how the law of Moses still has its, its value to us. And I would say that it does have value. Only in as much as it points us to Jesus Christ. If you're keeping the feast, if you're not eating certain foods, all because the law of Moses says it, but you don't see how it's actually glorifying Christ in it, how the feast point to him, how the concept of eating unclean meats or clean meats is not pointing to and glorifying the person of Jesus Christ, then you're doing it for the wrong reasons. As Romans 14 talks on, each person must be fully convinced in his own mind, because whatever doesn't proceed from faith is sin. But I would encourage you to go back and look at who he's referencing as the one that abstains from uh, eating. Who is it that is the one that keeps these days as holy? It's the one who's weak in faith. It's the one who doesn't understand what the gospel has purchased us. It's the one who doesn't get what First Timothy 4, 1 through, um, I think it's 1 through 5, talks on. About these foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving. He isn't talking about what's only identified under the law. He's referencing back in Genesis 8. When God told Noah. When you got off. <coughs> when you got off the ark. And you came on the other side of salvation. You came on the other side of it all. Everything that moves shall be food for you. It's not just the clean and the unclean. Everything that moves. Is food, and I've given it to you because I created it as good to be received with thanksgiving, and it is made holy through prayer. So the reality is, guys, we can't get away from the concept that even the concept of eating unclean and clean foods has now been done away with and rendered useless and of no effect. And again, that's the problem. If I say that one part has been fulfilled and this other part I still have to hold to, then I've now made God a liar. Because it is either all fulfilled or none of it's fulfilled. It's, one, it's a one and done type thing. It's either all or nothing. 
And I'm going to show you how even the Ten Commandments have been fulfilled. And I'm going to show that in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. But here's what he says in Romans chapter 7. Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, which we know for a fact this is referencing the law of Moses based off of what he says in verse 7. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. One of the Ten Commandments. So we know that he's, he's addressing it to people, Christians primarily, who know the law of Moses. He says, and I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding only on, on a person only as long as he lives. Why does he bring this up? Because the law itself talked about this concept. So he says, even the law itself says that a law established by God is only there until a death occurs that redeems a person from it. So that you may then belong to another. Here's what he says. A married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. Notice the present tense. He's not referencing under the law because that's not a, a, an old covenant teaching. Deuteronomy 22 and 24, as I'm going to go into this, con this concept later on in another segment, Deuteronomy 22 and 24 talk about how it's not binding as long as the person lives, that even if the woman doesn't please the man, or if she lied about her virginity, they're free to divorce her. This is what Jesus is talking about in Mark 10. When the Pharisees come and say, is it lawful to divorce for any reason? Jesus says, what's the law tell you? And they said, yeah, Moses said we could write a certificate of divorce. And he says, yes, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to do it, but in the beginning it was not so. This is not how God instituted the covenant of marriage. So he goes on and he says, But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if her marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Now listen to what he says. Likewise. In the same way that death annuls the covenant. My brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. To him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we are living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now... In Christ, under this new covenant, we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. Which is a Greek word, grama, and it means the sacred writings of the Old Testament. Does the old law still have value for those who are in Christ? Absolutely, but only in as much as it points us to Jesus Christ. All scriptures breathed out by God is profitable. There's profit to knowing the law because you've got to know people where, they, where a person comes from. You've got to know where you come from. And the law helps expose that. But the law in and of itself has no value any longer in your justification or in your right standing with God. That is only through the person of Jesus Christ and taking up that cross and living the life that he lived. Walking in the light as we talked about in 1 John. So yes, there is value there. But if you keep the feast simply because that's what you think the law of Moses commands you to do and you're still under that law, then let me just tell you, you are very misinformed. Because it is not what Scripture teaches. Galatians chapter 3, 15-26. This is another passage. I'm going to wrap it up here in just a second. I want to keep it under, under an hour. Um, but I do know the weight of these two verses and it cannot be something that 
um, we just kind of leave on a surface teaching. Listen to what he says in Galatians chapter 3, again, 15 through 26. And I'm going to, for sake of time, I would encourage you to go read this, but I'm going to highlight some of the things here. One, in which in verse 16, it talks about that it, we all oftentimes look at the Abrahamic covenant as the end-all, be-all, that God still has his covenant with the people of Israel because of Abraham, and they're still his people. Let me just say, Jesus says in John 46, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So I don't care if there's an Abrahamic covenant or not. You don't come to the Father unless you come through Jesus Christ. You can be part of that Abrahamic covenant all you want to. You can honor it. You can be a part of it. You can have your lineage and descendantry through the Jews. And you can try to do everything that you can. But if you do not come through Jesus Christ, you are not His. There are no two parallel covenants running side by side. Jesus says, I am the only way to the Father. You don't come in through any other source. You don't come through any other means. You don't come through any other person. And a lot of people look at this and they say, but Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, yeah, they were great men and they are up in heaven with God. But if you analyze what Galatians chapter 3, starting at 15 says, who was that actually pointing to? This thing that I've been trying to say from the beginning of going over this, it is not what was, it's what is And those things simply pointed us to what is. The offspring talked about Abraham and Isaac. It actually wasn't really even about them. Same way as in Ephesians 5 when it talks about marriage. Marriage isn't even about the man and the woman. It's about Christ and his church. That's what he says in 32 through 33. This mystery is profound and I say it refers to Christ and his church. Same way as this. It's not about Abraham and Isaac. That was a picture of what was pointing to something greater. And it says the offspring was Christ. He goes on and he talks about that the inheritance no longer comes by the law. Because if it did, it wouldn't be by promise. He goes on then, why was the law added? Because of transgressions. It worked perfectly in God's plan because it reveals the depravity of our soul and our need for Jesus. He goes on and he says that scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law. Imprisoned until the coming faith would come. Notice, until the coming faith would come. So then the law was our guardian or our schoolmaster until Christ came. In order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, we are all sons of God through faith. So it's no longer about the law of Moses. That's not what governs us. It's not what is um, supposed to be what we're under. It is not what we simply submit to. It's been rendered idle and useless to accomplish what God really wants us to accomplish. Because that is only done through the person of Jesus Christ. We could go on even to Galatians chapter 4, 21 through 5, 1. He says, tell me who desire to be under the law. Paul's writing to Christians, people who are trying to go back to the law to find an escape of the persecution for the person of Jesus Christ. He says, tell me, you who want to be under the law, don't you even listen to it? Don't you even see what it's talking about? He says, but the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free one was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These two women are two covenants. One is birthed at Mount Sinai. That's Hagar. 
born according to the flesh. Now you know what was birthed at Mount Sinai, I hope. If you don't, it was the law of Moses. Now listen very carefully to what he says. These two covenants can be interpreted allegorically through these two women, Sarah and Hagar. And Hagar is the one that was birthed at Mount Sinai. She's bearing children for slavery. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above, meaning the heavenly Jerusalem, is free. And she is our mother. Because we were born according to promise, not according to the flesh. And the law was not born according to promise. The law birthed flesh. And he goes on and he says, Now you brothers like Isaac are children of promise, but just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. What in the world is Paul saying? He says, we are not among those who are birthed at Mount Sinai. And what are we supposed to do? Cast out the slave woman. That covenant that was there. Remember, these two women are two covenants. And what they birth are two totally different things. He's not referencing the Muslims here, guys. What he's referencing is this allegorical understanding that the covenant that was made at Mount Sinai is no longer of any substance to us who are now under the new covenant. It's not one and the same because to say it's one and the same and it's just a renewed covenant and we still have to go back and keep the laws to say Ishmael and Isaac are the same. But you know what? They came from two different people. Same father, but two different women. Listen to what he says then in Galatians 5.1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. What's he referencing? What are we freed from? The law of Moses. That's the context. So I would encourage you guys to make sure that you're looking at that. Even in Hebrews 8.13, he talks about that the old covenant has been made obsolete. And he says, what is being made obsolete and ready to vanish away? What does that mean? That means simply that that covenant is still there. It's still in existence, as I've talked to you before. Just not for those who are in Christ. We can't belong to two covenants, guys. That's like saying that I can... um, in a way that's pleasing to God, have two covenants of marriage now. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, you know what, and just for the sake of time, I'm going to to encourage you to go read that, but here's what I do want you to understand. In verse 10 of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he says this, Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. What's he talking about? He's talking about this ministry of death carved in letters on stone. Well, you know what that is? That's the Ten Commandments that came at Mount Sinai. And he calls it a ministry of death. And he says that's no longer what we're under. And in fact, those Ten Commandments have come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. This is why I say, can you find value in those Ten Commandments? Sure, but... Only in as much as it points us upward to the person of Jesus Christ. 
Because in and of itself, it has no glory whatsoever. None. This is why Jesus with the rich young ruler, when he came to him and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He calls him good teacher. He comes running down at his feet and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus looks at him and he says, keep the commandments. He goes, I've done all that. I've done all that. I've, since my youth, I've kept all the commandments, all the Ten Commandments. I've done those things. The five that I'm responsible for to make sure that I'm doing it is my, my work. I'm doing it. And Jesus says, then why are you standing before me? Have you ever thought about that? Here you are keeping these Ten Commandments. And you're still asking me, what do you need to fill in the missing piece? You're still lacking. You still feel dead. You still feel empty. You still feel like you don't have eternal life. And Jesus says, follow me at the cost of yourself. Deny yourself. Pick up the same cross and follow me and you'll find life. And the guy walked away unhappy. Why? Because the Ten Commandments didn't satisfy him. It didn't accomplish what God wanted it to accomplish. Because only through Jesus Christ can it be accomplished. He's our portal. He's our access. He's the canal that we need. To be pleasing unto the Father. But whether or not we are, will be up to us. You know, 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Do your best to present yourself as one approved. That word, um, dakomei, I believe, is the word that's used there for pleasing. I'm sorry, approved. It means pleasing and acceptable. Which goes back into 1 John 1, nine. Guys, this concept is all throughout Scripture. And here's, here's what I'm just going to end this with. The law of Moses is still in effect, but it is only in effect for those who are in or who are not in Christ Jesus. And its sole intent is to show the depravity of one's soul and their need for saving. But once we come into Christ and we've realized those two things and we've come into Christ, we're no longer under that guardian. It served its purpose. And we're no longer under it, which means we don't have to serve it. It's not about the law being what we serve. Because now we belong to another to serve him. And he's not asking us for us to go backwards and keep the law. What he's asking us is to press forward to what's ahead. Not looking back to what's behind. So may we as Christians look forward to the person of Jesus Christ. May we as Christians look to the life that he lived and beckons us to live. Remember... Not all the Gospels, that was still Old Covenant. They were still under the law. Christ was still under the law. In order to fulfill the law, he had to live the law. So we can't look at just his life and say, okay, I need to imitate that. We need to look at the epistles. The epistles are the things that are the building blocks for the church. Christ being the cornerstone and the apostles teaching, as Ephesians 2 goes on to say, is what we're supposed to be following. This is why a lot of people get confused is because they look at things in the Apostles or in the Gospels and they say, oh, well that contradicts with the Epistles, but you know what, that's Jesus, so i got to do what he says, not what Paul says. The Gospels, guys, were still Old Covenant. And there's some things in it that Jesus is clarifying that have been distorted and some things in it that Jesus is promoting for the New Covenant. But the New Covenant was not established yet. So you've got to keep that in mind and understand the reality is, the law of Moses will never make you pleasing before a holy God. There's only one. And his name is Jesus Christ. This is why 1 Peter 2 says that offering spiritual sacrifices to God 
acceptable or pleasing through Jesus Christ. So, two heavy passages that I hope that you guys um, were able to glean a lot from and that you guys are going to take seriously to go study the Word so that we can have all Scriptures have a seat at the table so that you and I can make sure that we stand approved before God. Men and women who are rightly handling the Word of truth. Y'all be blessed.